Good morning, everybody. So what we're doing is we're continuing the various different subtopics, the, the issue of the wider topic of studying secular studies. And I thought that this week we could do, on Shavuos, we really just focused on the second ban. We just focused on the ban of 1305, with the third ban. Um, and we didn't really touch on the ban in the 1230s, which was effectively the first major ban, but really technically the second ban on the books of the Rama. In order to really get into that topic, we first have to understand a little bit about what was so unique of the Rambam. Unlike Rashi, who only gives one introduction in Shirim, Rashi never gives any other introduction. The only time, let's say, for example, you find a little bit about Rashi is obviously his ability to use French. For example, like in Parashat he, he talks about the woman riders of horses. You see, he knows a little bit about what's going on about the world around them. But other than that, you don't really get to know about his family. Sometimes he quotes the Rebbe here and there in Shas. Sometimes he quotes certain Shuvah Saga'inim or Yushami, so you see certain access to books, etc. But it's very, very, very limited. The Ram, on the other hand, tells you a lot about himself. And I'm not talking so much on the letters, because in Rashi's letters, you can also find a little bit about him. But in Rashi, in the Ramam's actual book itself, in the Parashah Mishnah, in the Mishnah Torah, in the Moran of Bukhim, and, and other books that he wrote, you can learn about himself personally. The Ramam writes, for example, in the end of the Hakdama to the Parashah Mishnah, that it took him seven years to write the book. And he wrote the book while he was suffering from the tribulations of exile. Uh, they, they followed him around the, uh, the, these uh, pretty fanatic Muslims, these Almohads that were running, they run, ran them out of Spain. He had to run throughout North Africa until he got to Israel, until he eventually settled back in Egypt. So you learn about his life. He writes that I wrote the Persia Mishnah while on a ship, while in a caravan, in the desert. So you get to feel how difficult it was to write it. And he wrote the book starting from when he was 23 years old until he was 30. And then he took 10 years, he writes, Esther Shonim Ritzufais in one of his letters to write the Mishnah Torah. He wrote that for 10 years. Day and night, that's what he worked on. Eventually his brother, Rav David, passed away, who had supported him. And then he then was required to go and earn a living for himself. And years later, eight years later, there's a letter they found in the Cairo Gniza where he writes that how much he misses his brother. He's still inconsolable about him. And he had to go out and get a job. Of course, he became the doctor to the, to the advisor there in Cairo. He lived in Fostat. And so that was his way of being able to make, make ends meet. He had to support his brother's family too. So the Rambam, Right, the Mishnah Torah in 10 years. And then the last book of his life, the fame, most of him, again, he wrote he wrote, he wrote other, various other works, but the three main works that we that we are all familiar with is the, is the Maranavukim, which writes at the very end of his life. That's his last book. Both of
to understand friendship. The Persian Mishnah was a radical book when it was written. Anyone know why? It was a radical book. Why was the Persian Mishnah a radical book? It was radical because really from the time of the Gemara, nobody was studying Mishnah alone. People were studying Gemara. And so you came up with the Mishnah when you're in the process of studying the Gemara. But there's so many times when the Mishnah and the Gemara diverge. And when the divergence are in simple things, not, for example, different words, but putting a parak in a different order, right? Or putting one, like in Megillah, or putting in the Mishnah and Sanhedrin, the first parak, the whole parak, right, is in the Mishnah and Sanhedrin. You look at the Gemara, it looks like it's one Mishnah. But if you look at the Mishnahites, you see it's many, many Mishnahites. There are different divisions of Prakim, there are different Mishnahs out of order, which you can find scattered throughout Shas. There is a difference between the Gemara and the Mishnah and the way the Gemara portrays the Mishnah versus the way the Mishnah, qua the Mishnah, portrays itself. The reason that it was a revolutionary work wasn't because he came up with massive production. The reason that the Persian Mishnah was a revolutionary work was because it was the first work on the entirety of the Mishnah that anyone had ever written. It was a commentary on the entirety of the Mishnah. No one had ever done that before. It was written in Arabic. For the ease, like people who have problems with art scroll, like when I was a kid, like art scroll, Gemara, this, this. The Ramah wrote in Arabic, Gemara is written in Aramaic. Relax, right? So he wrote it in order to be ease for those who would be reading it to understand what was going on. And of course, it was a big hit. It was a bestseller. Fantastic. The Marnavuchim is also a very revolutionary work. Why is the Marnavuchim a very revolutionary work? It's a revolutionary work because although it's true that Sajigo and I had written as the Munis Vadeus before, but this was a work that's far and away more comprehensive, more fulsome, more wide-ranging than even Sajigo and the Munis Vadeus. The entirety of Taira is taking under his purview in a philosophical way. And he's going to explain it for anyone who's confused. So it was a radical work in the sense that no one had done that, fundamentally, to such a degree. But substantively, it was also radical. In a way that the parish mission was not radical. There's nothing in the parish mission that's very radical. There's a few times where he argues with the Gainim. Later on in the mission, he sees he argues more with the Gainim. But it's not fundamentally radical. It's a parish, it's a commentary on the mission. It doesn't blow you away with any originality. It doesn't blow you away with you know, massive kedushin. What it does is it basically explains the mission. It does what it says it's going to do. The radicalness is in the form, the fact that someone did it. And then after that, it inspired many copiers, right? You have the Bartanura, right? You have the Rash Mishans. You have other commentators over the years who have done it. Rashi on the mission, by the way, uh, this print is not necessarily the Rashi uh, from Rashi, same like Rashi on the Rif, Rashi no, these are not necessarily Rif. Rashi there. The Shiva of Rashi. When we come to talk about the Marinavukim, we come to talk about it as a revolutionary work, not just in the fact that it takes on such a massive swath of Torah and philosophy. Substantively, the Marinavukim is very, very, very radical. The most radical point of the entire Marinavukim is a point that he makes it clear again and again and again, but it's also the point that we'll get to in the Mishnah Torah is that 
anything that is anthropomorphic about Hashem, anything that is about Hashem's physicality, is not to be understood literally. Period. Full stop. This was a revolutionary thing that the Rambam single-handedly created a revolution in Judaism. Until that time, and even after that time, there are people who have understood Hashem's immanence, in other words, not his transcendence, but his immanence, as being manifested somehow with aspects of corporeality. That is a, by definition, a no-no in the Ramah. And this, at the end of the day, is Geboit, the entire Maranavukim. This is the fundamental Kiddush. Everything else is important too, but that is number one. But this is not a Kiddush that he came up with in the Maranavukim. Already he had written the Mishnah Torah. Now, the Mishnah Torah is radical in a number of ways. The reason it's number one radical as a halacha sefer is because it was the very first, and really since, there's only been one other halacha sefer that I'm aware of that tried to do what the Rambam did, which is, I am going to write you a codification of the entirety of Kula, of halacha. The only one who I know who else tried it is the Aruch HaShulchan. <clears throat> you have to include the Aruch HaShulchan Asid also. But also it takes every single halacha. And of course, the Rambam is his model. He took the entirety of all of halacha as it exists in Shas and in the Mishayim, put it together in his Aruch HaShulchan. It's an unbelievable work. Mamish goes through everything. But what the Rambam did, what the Rambam did in his, and even him, but doesn't get to the same degree as the Rambam. What the Rambam did, and he says in his, in his introduction, that he's going to do this, that he's going to be able to make the entirety of the Torah distilled into the codification of the Mishnah Torah, such that one will only need to study Tanakh and my book. Now, in his letters, we'll get into this maybe or not, there's a maximalist reading and a minimalist reading of this. The maximalist reading is he literally was thinking that you could learn Tanakh and my book and be done. It's clear to me 100% that the Ramam never meant that. And I'm not saying this as apologetics. I'm not saying that as apologetics, the Rambam really, wink, wink, thought that you didn't have to study Gemara at all. Just read Tanakh and my book and we're done. Because remember, according to the Rambam, we'll get this eventually, what was driving him? What was driving him was the study of physics and metaphysics. What was driving him was the study of the essence of the creation of the universe so that one could come to know Hashem. So what was it at the end of the day that forces the Rambam's hand to say, you only have to study Tanakh in my book? I think what he's really saying is, is that a lot of the back and forth in the Gemara, a lot of the stum of the Gemara, a lot of the kushis and abayas and terutim of the Gemara are not necessarily needed for living a life. In other words, the Rambam was not learning of Chaim. He was not learning of Baruch Barakilas Yaakov. He didn't have access to the Evan Ozel. In his mind, there wasn't Tilei, Tilei of Allah has to be learned from every Havamin of the Gemara. What the Gemara was there was to tell you how to, how to live. Like the Gemara says in Bamatsiya, that the idea of the, the Gemara, it was the, it's Sayyid Pairah. It's basically 
you have the mission and all the halachas. The Gemara adds in thousands more. So in the halachic sense, that's what you need it for. But to study, what's the having the Gemara for hours on end, endlessly, that it seems to me that the Rabbim did not feel was necessary. But not the maximalist reading. That those who actually think they didn't have to read it at all. And I can prove it to you from a number of ways. One of which is they have manuscripts of the Ramam's Parish of Mishnah. In the Hebrew University, in Oxford University, you can look at it. And you see the Ramam is editing the Parish of Mishnah long after he wrote the Mishnah Torah. Right? So by definition, it's a self-proof. Why are you editing the Parish of Mishnah? You already said that all you have to study is Tanakh and my Sefer. You're editing a Parish of Mishnah, which is the commentary to the Mishnah that you said no longer has to be studied. If the Rambam is editing his own works till the very end of his life, and he keeps on saying, oh, you know, I was, learning, I was, and he writes, you know, like an addendum. Everyone, he's putting it in. It's like, I was studying for the Mishnah Torah. I was going through things, and it came to me that actually this comment that I wrote then is not right. So I'm rewriting it here, and he crossed it out. This is what I think is now the case. If he's doing that till the very end of his life, it means that he still felt it was necessary to learn the parish of Mishnah. There was still validity to it. It was still viable. Obviously, it's still a point to learning Mishnah. Moreover, in the various letters of the Rama, it talks about what he does to the people who are challenged for this line. And he says, oh, I'm not, uh, I'm not needing to study the rest of the Parish Balpeh, just my book. And he says, I, I don't mean that. He says, what I study in my own base manager is not my own Mishnah Torah. He's like, the students in my own yeshiva, they study the riff. I give them Shiraman Gemara and on the riff, what they want to study. It's like only one or two boys, they study the Mishnah Torah. So in his own base medrash, they're not studying it. And he's allowing other studies to go on. These are by definition, these are simple proofs. So the Ramam never meant what he said in a maximalist. Maybe he could have written a little better later. But the maximalist reading of the Ramam really felt everything is unnecessary just to gaze into the heavens, just to think about the nature of the universe is really, a, to my mind, a misreading. The academics love it because to them it's a proof of the fact that the Rambam really preferred only the study of Greek philosophy and mathematics and, and logic. And I don't, he may have loved it, sure. And we're going to get into that eventually. But to say that, therefore, he felt that one doesn't have to study the Torah, Shabal Peh, I don't, I don't see it at all. I want to put in. I, I said, and my, my argument is based upon what he studied in his shiva, based upon his edit that he gives further on in his life, that it seems pretty clear to me that what he felt was not very necessary was doing what later on Achrayim did, right? The whole the whole genre of the of the Rashi Shiva Sfarim that you learn in all the good yeshiva yeshivas in the Lithuanian world is all the study of, of the of the Havayas of the Gemara. It's all the study of the Havamidas of the Gemara. They spend an inordinate amount of time on the Shaktataria, not on the practical halacha. I think if you read all the letters of the Ramah, that's what you get the impression that that's what he felt. You don't have to waste time on that. You have to know all the halakhas that the Gemara brings, for sure. All that Agatha stuff, he loves that Agatha stuff. If you look at the Rambam, the Parashat Mishnah, the end of Brachas, the last Rambam, the Parashat Mishnah there, he says that I prefer to study 
of 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 the Yeah, so illiteracy, I think, is uh, is actually was always a much smaller problem by the Jewish people. Like in Christendom, certainly the peasantry was all illiterate, but not by the Jews. The Jews always knew how to learn the daven. Jews were always taught already from the times of the Gemara. So I think illiteracy was never, huh? The men, I mean the men. The, the, the men, of course, I mean the men. Um, that illiteracy was never such a major problem. But I agree with you. Certainly, what we talk about, and in terms of the size of the entirety of the Jewish people at that time, we're talking much smaller than it is today. And I'll tell you a story. <clears throat> when, I, um, when I was dating my wife, my wife's father had passed away before, uh, before I ever started dating her. So uh, I guess the custom in the olden days, right, that uh, the father's going to give me a, a fahar. So he's nine, you know, 80-something years old, uh, studied in the Plus, uh, the Plus Rav, comes from Munkach. I went to go meet him, and I knew he was a he was a shaykhet, he was a, a tamakach, he knew how to learn. Fine, but he's an old man, so what's he gonna what's he gonna test me on exactly? I wasn't sure, but he wants to talk to me. Fine, so I go there, sit down, starts talking to me in Yiddish, varfing on Agata to Gemara's. So, okay, so I try to show him that I know a little bit Agata to Gemara's. So I also, you know, threw some back at him. So going back and forth, and he's trying to prove a reading of mine incorrect, and. Um, I wasn't uh, exactly the same age I am now. I didn't take it too kindly. I told him he doesn't know what he's talking about in nicer words. I said, but there's another one like this, this, that. And he's getting very upset at me. And I was like, just let him win. He's not going to stop until he wins. You have to let him win. I win. I let him win. Fine. And then he tells me the following line. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be proud of what you know a little bit. Fine. He's like, you never went without dinner. He's like, you don't know what it means to learn without having a place to eat at night. He didn't elaborate so much, but I understood. In pre-war Europe, man who was born in like 1920, didn't always have dinner. And that, I think, is the answer as to how, with a limited amount of Jewish people, you could have such elite. You, should, you could have just the random people in the shtibol. Everybody's an elitist. Everybody's holding. You have it because of the fact that people mamish, this was the life. There was nothing else. There were no distractions. There was no light pollution at night. There was nothing else to do by day. There was nothing to take away your mind. This was occupation number one, numero uno. 
to point out one more thing. I don't know if it's to be taken seriously. Literally, I don't know. I haven't seen anybody talk about it, but I found three times throughout the corpus of the Ramam, two times in his letters, one time in the Hakdama to the Parashah Mishnah, which itself is a worthwhile limud. You have to have time to go through the whole thing. The Ramam writes, it's impossible for any human being to know the entirety of the Talmud by heart. Now that gives you pause. It gives me pause. What does that mean? It's impossible to know the entirety of the Talmud by heart? This is a person who had no computer. Right, well, what is the, we have to talk about the mission Torah a little bit to get back on our topic. What was so amazing about the Ramam? It's his organizational ability. It's the ability to take Kula, go through everything, distill it into pockets, into sleeves. Now, sometimes they're forced. No one's denying. Why is Hilchas Abelos and Shaiftim? Okay. There's a lot to talk about. Sometimes a little bit forced. We don't, we don't disagree. But the general organizational ability to have everything in your mind without a computer. I mean, what, what did, he, did he have notes? Did he have like thousands of pages of notes? He doesn't tell us that. He doesn't give us that much eye into the laboratory. But telling us that he spent 10 years day and night working on it and telling me that he doesn't know shots by heart. And in his letters, it's clear that he doesn't know it by heart. There are many letters we write. Somebody came to ask me a question. And I don't know the answer. I don't know where it is. I looked here. I looked there. I looked in Git. I looked in Bamatsi. I looked in Yerushalmi. Where is it? And finally, I found it was in your vomit. Like on Tezai. Like, you know, I mean, he, he writes this. It's like shocking, right? This is a person who later on in his life, at the end of his life, after his brother passed away, has to go to work. And he's working for the, you know, the, the advisor there in, the, in, in Cairo. Writes a day and night. He's busy. He doesn't have time to see the translator of the Marana book. He doesn't have time to see me. He writes me, like, please don't come to see me. He's like, I'd love to talk to you. You're a man after my own heart. But I have no time to see you. Because the entire day, I'm in the king's palace there. I'm, I'm examining everybody. It's not just the, 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 the ministers. It's also the harem. I have to be responsible for the kids. Everybody there. And then I come home at night, and I have people waiting for me. I said, like, I beg them, let me just eat a little bit. So I eat a little bit, I daven, and then I'm lying on my bed and people coming and asking me questions until late hours in the night. It's like, I have no time to study. I haven't learned. I have no time to study. The only time I have a little bit of time is on Shabbos when I don't have to go to Cairo. And he's like, on Shabbos day after the... He lives in Fosta, near Cairo, like a 10 mil. You have to travel every day. So the suburb. Today, it's all part of Cairo. That's Cairo today, it's 10 million people, it's enormous. But then it was a suburb. So he says that I, I, I sit here on Shabbos. After the meal, I go to Beit Medrash. And the people, they want me to read with them. Gemara, Chumash, I do with them. And then I have a Shalosh I go home. And that's my day. He's like, that's the only time. is on Shabbos. But I really have no time at all. So please, better to stay there. Don't come and waste your time. You're going to be disappointed with what you see. You're not going to have a chance to talk to me. And to say that, that that is this, I mean, it, 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 to my mind, it makes it that much more impressive than Mishnah Torah. It makes it that much more mind-boggling. This is a person who writes in his letters that there is not, not one book on on Zara that has been translated into Arabic that he hasn't read. This is a person who, in his letters, he writes what, the pedagogical study should be for somebody. He has a 
He has a list of books that you should study. He's writing to the students. This is what you should study. Which Greek philosophers, which one's not? He says, this waste of time, the waste of time, waste of time. This one you should study, this one you should study. Right? Averroes, he holds it very much. That's when you should study. Many of the other ones not. He's intimately familiar with the whole world of secular studies that has existed in his day. He's obviously a bucking cause, Herakula, and says he doesn't know it by heart. So to me, what that says is the energy and the effort, if it's, if it's true. In other words, if it's not modesty. But I don't know if it's modesty in those days or not. I don't know. But the, imagine the amount of effort it takes for someone who's a superhuman genius to be able to do it. Imagine somebody doesn't have it. I want to I want to get back on point, which is why is the Mishnah Torah so mind-bogglingly unique? The reason is both in terms of the the not the chutzpah is the wrong word, but the conceit to say I'm going to take Torah and distill it down into halacha. He's not saying I got it the Gemara. He's not taking things that are just pure halacha. Much of the Mishnah Torah is filled with what I call hortatory, musr type uh, halachas, not just what you should, what you shouldn't do. But every practical, technical halacha brought down in shots, probably Risham is brought down in the Ramah. He doesn't miss one. Now, of course, there are some that seems like he misses people. Ah, it's not missed. This is the reason, whatever. But that's what we're talking about. The ability to look at the entire Torah, no one had ever done that before. The Rift had gone on certain massacres, only the relevant ones. The Raj, only the relevant halakhas. The Raj, of course, afterwards. But no one had ever done everything. That's number one. Number two, it was incredibly radical because it's not just about halakha. There's also a huge amount of philosophy in there. Before he gets to Hilkas Talmud Torah, he first has his Hilkas Yisraeliyat Torah. And his Hilchas Deis. And the Hilchas Yisraeliyat Torah is based upon what? The first four chapters are all based upon philosophy. It's all of what he says in Mar Nebuchim. It's distilled into four chapters in the beginning of Mishnah Torah. And then his Hilchas Deis is all based upon the Greek medicine of his day and the knowledge of their time. So the Rambam is telling you fundamentally that the foundations, the underpinning of all of Torah is his Yisraeliyat Torah. And his Yisraeliyat Torah, his first chapter, remember the Rambam wrote in Mishnah Torah a thousand chapters. He didn't have to write a thousand. Why couldn't he write 998? He mistakenly wrote a thousand? No. He wrote a thousand deliberately because it's a work of art that covers everything and every single chapter and placement, the heading, is a perfect reason why it's there. So the radicalness is in the taking the old Torah, <clears throat> the radicalness is in bringing in lots of things that are extraneous to Torah as well and making them a part of halacha. And of course, another reason why it's very radical was because as the Ravid himself says right at the beginning, what is this Machaba coming along to do? He's giving us all these halakhas and no sources. No sources for any of this. How come? Says this is not the way it was done. All previous commentaries, what they always did was they put a source. Even Rabbi Huda Anasi in the Mishnah that the Rambam is modeling himself after. Right? He's modeling himself after what? 
after the after the Mishnah, Rabbi Huda Nasi wrote the same type of Hebrew, the same style, the same kind of different breakdown, but the same idea of these breakdowns, these headings, right? Not nothing to do with shots. He makes his own headings, his own organization, just like Rabbi Huda Nasi did. But unlike Rabbi Huda Nasi, he doesn't bring down anybody by name. Yes, sometimes he says Hiragainim. Sure, sometimes he does that. Many, numerous times, over ten times he does that. But still. Hayragainim is not exactly bringing down to us. Rabunasi did. It's a very beautiful Rashmi Shant, an idiot. You look there, he says, why is the first paragraph, why is it that Rabudanasi in the Mishnah brought down all the different names? Rabbi Meir says this, and Rabbi says this. Why didn't he just bring down the halacha? And so he suggests that the reason for that is so that in future times, when people want to do something differently, when the needs of the generations have changed, that there should be a room to be able to change the halacha. But when you're bringing down the halacha in an apodictic way, with no chilukim and no names, and we have no idea if there's anybody who holds differently, it sounds like this is it, and there's no other way but this way. By my way or the highway. The rabbi is very upset about that. That he's acting in a way not like the other Machab. The Rambam explains in the letters why he did it. The Rambam says, I did this because it would have added so much more, so much more length. And it was already it was so long, the Mishnah I, I couldn't just make it just so voluminous. It would be no point. You'd be learning the Gemara. So I said, I couldn't do that. But he said, I would like to write a separate source book. We never got to it. We never. We don't have any. Any. We don't have that. He says, "I would like to write a separate source book with all of it here, so that people, when they wonder where I got it from, can be able to see it." Of course, if he would have written the separate source book, it would have taken away a lot of the energy of the Jewish people over the last thousand years who have exercised themselves to find all the sources of the Rama. So this is a little bit of a background to get to our topics that I don't know if we're going to get to the the, the ban on 1305. But I want to focus on the ban in 1232. So I, never got to it. To give you an idea, you asked the question for this is before printing. How how popular did the Rambam get? How how quickly did he get popular? I'm gonna skip into the middle here. This is to me an idea. You want to know how how popular he got in the wildfire. I mean, I, I don't know if people here learn the Rambam, you know, to say that like Chabad, you know, you have a stink Seder in the Rambam every day. It's just a good Chazara. It's everything. So it's it's always good to just be learning. I mean, Kisr Shachanach is very it's easier and shorter for sure. But if you don't have access to that, it's very hard to learn the riff. If you're not an expert writing the Gemara, the riff doesn't do it. If you're not an expert in the Gemara, the rush doesn't really do it. The Ram, you don't really need to know anything else. You can just come there and just sort of read it. Again, like I say, Kizrachanar is the easiest. You can't, if, if you're already past Kizrachanar, you've done it already numerous times. And of course, the Ramam is the way to go. The Ramam, I was going to mention uh, how quickly it took the world by wildfire. The Ramban. We'll get to this here in his pushback against the ban in the 1230s. Says, You want to ban the Rambam? 
He's like, you're going to have no success. He's like, I hear in Yemen that they changed the Kaddish to say, Okay, this is what they're doing in Yemen in the Rambam's lifetime. You want to know how quickly it took the world? Very quickly. A world without cars, airplanes, or printing. When they saw this, everyone knew the game has changed. This is the most game-changing work of halacha ever. Probably to this day. As I said, the Aruch tried valiantly to do his own. It's pretty impressive because it has to include another 800 years since the Rambam. But it still doesn't get to all the way of the Rambam. What the Rambam did, it, it's unequaled. The mastery is unequaled. When you add into it all the other things that it was going on in his mind and his life, it, it is absolutely mind-boggling how the man doesn't know shots. It, it, I can't, it's almost like, I can't be Kabbalah. Of course he do shots. At least then I have an excuse that I'm an ignoramus. Fine. But if he says that he doesn't know shots and he was still able to do it, can you imagine what, how much chayim we are? It like boggles the mind. It's one thing if he has the mind of Ravad Yosef, everything he looks at one time. You know, the story, the great story of the, the Ragachav and Ramir Simple. They both lived in Vince. There's a great story that uh, Ramir Simcha is a super genius, right? Meshkok, Marasnat, is unbelievable. They said the most of difference in you and the Ragachav. The Ragachav is a super genius. Right? What's the difference between you and the Ragachav? He says, you want to know the difference? I look at a Gemara one time. 20 years later, I don't have to look at it again. I still remember. The Ragachav, he doesn't have a good memory. The reason he knows everything is because he learned it yesterday. Again, I, I, when I take these lines in the Ramadan, he says he doesn't know shots by heart, that it's impossible to know. He doesn't say he doesn't. He says it's impossible to know shots by heart. He says literally the words are, it's impossible for a person to know shots by heart. If that's not just like saying, it, if it's really true, then I think it's actually a much more bigger chiv on us. If it's possible to do something like that, it's, e it's easier. It's not, it's not as much of a clincher or by yourself. You can literally open a safe for one time. He says, oh, yeah. Yeah. And he just sees it. Like to have a mom's photographic memory. Wish it on all of us. Anyhow, let's get now to uh, there's a lot of introduction, but let's not get to the actual ban in 1232. So what happened was, and I don't really have, I didn't, I don't have anything in, um, in my shoes thing. So it's not in there. Um, this is, uh, I, I printed out some of my notes from, from when I went to, into the whole, into this whole first band. So the, the, the short of it is the following. As we said, the biggest revolution of the Rambam's Merenavuchim was what? Is fight against anthropomorphism. It's fight against assigning corporeality to God. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is entirely beyond the physical. In the Rambam's mind, He's more radically transcendent than he is imminent. But it's not for right now. But that is how we can understand it. And so there were people who had a problem with that. The Ravid himself, if you look at both places in the Ravid, right, both in in uh, in Hokoshuva and uh Badizar, the Ravid and in Sayyid Atari, the Ravid says two times the same idea. The Ravid says a Lushan that there are people who are greater than the Ramam who believed that Akkadosh Baruch was manifesting physical, that he was having some corporeality associated with him. 
So how could you call these people heretics? How could you call these people people who have no uh, future in the world to come? It's not right. There were many people who had a problem with the Rambam's understanding. And more than that, the Rambam, as a result of this understanding, does not take Agatha Gemara's literally. But coming now, Hantika Parsha's what? Parsha's Bala. The Rambam here says a line in the Marnavuchim that the Ramban, Nachmanides, writes, it is usher to believe it. It's also to hear it. It's also to study it. This is the Rambam, the Ramban, writing about the Rambam. The Ramban quotes the Rambam in Chumash 30 plus times. I think with two exceptions, he's quoting him always from the Mernabukah. Two times he's quoting him from the Mishnah Torah. Where, right, in, in, um, in uh, Paris by Yishlach, right, in relation, to, um, in relation to the brothers killing out Shechem, there he quotes him from the Mishnah Torah. I'm trying to remember the other one, see if it comes to me. Um, the rest of the time, he's always quoting the Marna Rucham. In Parshas Vayera, in the beginning of the Parshas Vayera, he quotes the Rambam's very famous line from the Marna Rucham, where he says that all prophecy, because <clears throat> remember, the Rambam holds that Hashem is absolutely so transcendent, the very Islamic understanding, is so transcendent that anything associated with corporeality, anything associated with his imminent, not imminent. Immanence must be what? Must be explained away. Must be explained differently. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not here. We don't touch him. It's not a pantheistic Spinoza world here. But what does that mean? That means that all the Agatha Gemars need to be explained away. Right? All the Gemars about Hashem's tefillin and Hashem's doing what according to Hashem, and Hashem, all of it explained the way. And not only that, all the psukim in Tanakh that talk about Hashem's immanence have to be explained the way. Yes, they're all they're all parables of Mashalim, etc. Not to be taken literally. That there are a way that we should be able to understand something, we should be able to live, but it's not to be taken literally. And so, when it comes to the biggest problem that the Rambam has, if you told about Kodesh Bok being radically transcendent, what's the biggest problem? The biggest problem is prophecy. Prophecy is the biggest problem that the Rambam faces because prophecy means Shem is speaking to me here. What does the speech mean? Speech you think of as not corporeal. Is it not? Is speech not corporeal? If Hashem is speaking, is that not something that he's doing here in this world? Is that not something that is corporeal? The answer is it is. In the Ramam's understanding, even speech itself is very, very difficult to understand how Gorosh Baruch does it to a man or a woman. In this, the Rambam ends up basically undercutting how prophecy works as a matter of Pshat and Chumash and Tanakh. The Rambam understands that prophecy is very, 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 very limited. You thought that Hashem speaks to all these Nevi'im and Nevi'is in a way that like he's talking? No. The way it happened was in a dream. 
in a dream state. They were like in an unconscious state. I like to make the joke always that it comes out pretty crazy, right? When Hashem is speaking to Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, so two are unconscious, and Moshe Ben was standing upright away. But that's technically what the Ramam says. And accordingly, this mice of Bilam and this Parsha did not happen in real life, according to the Ramam. According to the Ramam, this entire story took place in Bilam's dream. Bilam had a dream, it was a long dream. And they came and they came back and they went back and all this. And the donkey hitting all of it took place in a chalayim. Took place in a prophetic dream, but not in reality. There was no talking donkey. There was no hitting the donkey. None of that happened in real life. Huh? No, this is the big question of the Ramam. We don't have time to go into now, but we look at the other side of the there. The Ramam discussed what Harsinai was. Harsinai was two seconds on it, but really, otherwise, we could spend the whole time on this. The Ramam holds that Maimed Arsina is much more limited than you would have understood as a matter of chat. How do you understand it as a matter of chat? That Hashem spoke to 2 million people, 600,000 men and women, and that all the, all the uh, 600,000 men between the ages of 20 and 60, and all the women, etc., probably close to 2 million people spoke to Arsina. Not according to the Ramam. According to the Ramam, Hashem spoke to Maishu Rabbeinu and Arsina. And what did the Jewish people hear? They heard a noise. They heard the they heard the rash. They heard back and forth something. But not that they heard Anaychi and Layyelacha and 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 Laysachmad. And that, according to the Rambam, they didn't necessarily hear. It's a very, very radical thing that he says. But if you read carefully, it is pretty clear that he is saying that the Jewish people never attained the level of prophecy of Amr Sinai. That every single person heard Hashem speaking, that he doesn't go so far as to say. But the reason he's forced into this kind of a straitjacket is because for him, prophecy is meaning Hashem speaking. It's fundamentally a cultural activity. It's fundamentally something that's associated with physical manifestation of Hashem. Even if speech doesn't seem physical to us, but we know today that we can measure it. Right? There are molecules moving. They're easily measured today. Speech is 100% physical. Ramam was right. He totally understood that the physical is not just what I can touch, the tactile. Way ahead. The tactile, even things that today we can only measure. They couldn't measure that. Still tactile. Still measurable. So the Ramam says these kinds of statements. Forget the stuff about Blasid Lava will be Mason. Forget stuff like that. That's also very controversial in this day. That was the first controversy. In other words, we're not going to get into that, but the, the Ramah, right? The Yad Ramah. We only have a few of them a second. The first controversy was about did the Ramah really believe it would be Mason. They accused him of saying Kimat, that he doesn't hold Mason at all, which is, of course, one of his Ikram, right? That will be only for neshamas, not for bodies. The Rambam says no. He writes a letter. that. He says no. I believe in it. I don't want to say anything more about it right now. But again, on this point about 
the radicalness, we still haven't gotten to the bad, but about the radicalness of the Mishnah Torah, the Marnebuchim, Barisha Mishnah, it took the world by wildfire. The Jewish world was consumed with this to the point we just mentioned about the people in Yemen, but the people in Provence, Montpellier, south of France, also became obsessed with the Rambam in his own lifetime. The Ibn Tibet family, which was a very famous family from Spain, that had moved to the south of France, they became the translators of, of the Marnebuchim. They're the ones who wrote that letter to the Rambam, he writes about his schedule. The Rambam became the only thing, not just like in in, uh, in places like uh, uh, Yemen, where they didn't have anybody else. No, in France, where they had other rabbis. They had other great rabbis. The Rambam took over. Spain, they had many other great rabbis. The Rambam became the Colossus. The place where he didn't make an inroad, the place where he didn't reach, was Germany and France. That, he didn't make big inroads. But Iraq, the Middle East, the the remnants of the of the the Ga'inim and the, the academies there, they, they had a problem with the Rambam. But throughout North Africa, the Middle East, Yemen, etc., the Arabia Peninsula, South, uh, the Spain, uh, Portugal, the Rambam became everything. So only in the Bali Taisa, you're not going to find the Rambam worrying about the Rambam, you know, debating the Rambam. That's it. And it elicits massive reaction to the contrary. As I said, the first reaction was from the Ramah about resurrection. That is disposed of. The Ramah writes his letter. doesn't become a major issue, but you know, festering away. But the second major issue is in the mid-1200s, where Rabbeinu Shloim Minhahar writes against the Ramah. And why is he writing against the Ramah? He's writing against the Rambam because the Rambam is not taking any of these Agatha literally. He's not taking any of these Sukkim literally. He's making all of it to be understood as effectively what? Mishalem, parables, ways of people to be able to relate, but nothing more. So that is eventually culminates into a ban. They ban the Rambam as Mern of Uchem. And the Sefer Hamada. And once you not learn it, this ban is adopted by certain rabbis in France, Germany. There elicits a massive reaction to the contrary. The people in Montpellier, ex, meaning where Shlomo was from, they excommunicate him. And what does he do? He doesn't take it sitting down. He goes and Tells the Christians about it. The Dominican friar says to them that this book by Maimonides is bad. He's telling bad stuff about, about religion. It was, he agitates against the Rambam. And who was with him? Rabbeinu Yaina. Rabbeinu Yaina was with Rabbeinu Shalom and Ahar and was one of the main people behind the band. It culminates in what? The burning. The burning of the books of the Rambam talk about it on Tisha The burning of the books of the Ramam takes place in the 1230s and as a result of that Yaina eventually goes on his mission to apologize. Very famously, Shara Tshuva comes from that way of 
trying to make amends for what can never be amends. I mean, at the end of the day, these priceless manuscripts of the Rambam are lost forever. Rabbeinu Shalom never, never retracted. Legend has it that the people who were part of the ban on the Rambam, this ban, they had their tongues cut out. Allah, you know, the Matana uh, Taikat prayer that uh, we say, it's, we don't know exactly where it comes from, whatever, but if you read the, uh, the art scroll, they tell you probably something to the fact that it comes from Shula, what was his name? Uh, um, Shula, maybe? Forgetting now the first name. From Mines, yeah, that he went and they cut his tongue out, just like a punishment for being mighty lots. Who knows? All right, so the Ramban, this is where we get to talking about the ban of 1232. The Ramban responds. The Ramban is a young man, he's about 37 or so years old, and he doesn't come from the same tradition as the Ramban. He's North Spain, he has his own. Rabbeim, his own approach, is not the approach of the Rambam. The Ramban, as we will see, is probably the main uh, crux from where our approach to secular studies is. It's not the Rambam, it's not the uh, It's sort of the Rambam. I think we're all going to eventually agree with that. But the Ramban is writing, he's being looped into this controversy, and he's trying to make a headway. He's trying to be able to keep everybody happy, while at the same time bringing the Ramban back from oblivion. Remember, the Ramban has made it his mission in life to defend those who were otherwise being attacked. Who's the first one he wrote a book on? Right? On the Rif, defending the Rif against the attacks of the Balamar. Right? Right? And the, the, the Ramban also wrote the Sefer's Kut, right? Against the Rivet, again, defending the Rif and Yavamit. So he has written books defending people against attacks from the younger contemporaries. And of course, he wrote his commentary on the Sefer Mitzvahs, the Rambam Sefer Mitzvahs. He's defending the Rambam against the attack. He's defending the Bahag against the attacks of the Rambam. So this is the Ramban's approach. Many times he's exercised to write something to defend an older sage from the attacks of a contemporary one. It happens to be, if you look in the Sefer HaMitzvahs, many times the Ramban doesn't defend the Baha'i. He can't defend them. He tries his best valiantly, but he is eventually masking with the Ramban. But there are times that he's 100% disagreeing with the Ramban and defending the Baha'i, for sure. But in every single instance, if you look at the way the Ramban refers to the Ramban, it's always harab. You know, it's not a modern day thing that you give her a rabbi, a rab, a rabbi, a guy, you know, it's an olden day thing. It's been going on for a long time. If you go through the Ramban, the way he refers to the Ibn Ezra is Rebbe Avram. Right? If you look at the way he refers to the Rambam, it's Harav. Sometimes Harav Hagadol. When he refers to Rashi, it's always Rashi or Rabbeinu Shlomo. Interesting how you look. You look at the Ibn Ezra, he quotes Rashi, he also quotes Rabbeinu Shlomo. Um, the Ramban is defending the Rambam while at the same time trying to get Rabbi Shalom and Ahar to back off a little. He wants to keep everybody happy, which is Hidarke Bakhtaydish. That's what he's done in his career. 
He has written many svarim trying to defend people. So it's naturally he's being brought in. This is the personality type. This is what he's going to try to do here. He writes two letters. Two letters about the ban. One letter is a pretty short letter. Remember, these are people you shouldn't like lose heart. These are people who didn't have cell phones, didn't have internet. Every letter, every line, I'm sorry, every line in the Ramban's letter is a pasuk. You understand the mastery, the complete mastery of Tanakh. It was always a thing in the old days to write. The Rambam himself does the letters that he writes, some, many times he's quoting Gemara's. Every line of the Ramban's letters is just a Pasuk. It's basically doing eye for Pasuk this way, that way, but every line. It's an absolute ingenious. And if you know a little bit of Tanakh, you can appreciate the genius of it, how he's playing with Sukkim, because what he's meaning is every line is another double entendre. It's what he's saying, but also what the Pasuk means in its own context. So the whole thing is like, a, it, it, it's just absolutely beautiful. So the Ramban writes the two letters. The first letter doesn't go anywhere. It's not a very long letter. The second letter is where he really puts in his energy. And, and, um, and over here, he, what do you call? He's being very, very deferential to the rabbi of France, but he says to them, I have to protest. I have to defend the honor of the Rama. I have to stand up for him against what you guys do. He says that Kol Eres Sarfa, Rabbonel, Bissaria, Pinashivatel, Kulam, his Kibul, and Nada, so the Hakim, Akol Isha, Shiyoda, Yerm, the Hagis, the Safer Mera, and Huth, the Safer Mata. He says, call Eretz Sarfas. I don't believe that historically that's true, that every rabbi in France don't think so. But I do think it's pretty clear that there were some rabbis in France who agreed to the ban. These are the Balayatais. These are the Balayatais. So the Ramban says he can't do it. He says he can't do it this way. He says the Ramban is the savior to the people who are influenced by secular society. That's how, he, that's how he defends it. He says, you, you guys, your holy people, he says, what you're doing by you banning is you're not merely trying to trim the hedges. You're destroying the whole forest. He's like, there are many people who are innocent, who take all that God into the Gemara's literally, who understand Hashem has been fine. Those, they don't need the Ramah. It's like, but what about the whole world that's influenced by Aristotle and Galen? All the people throughout the Islamic world were much more educated than the people in Christendom. This was a time when the Islamic world, it's hard to imagine today, but this is a time when the Islamic world was much more ahead than the Christian world. They were much more learned. So he says, you're going after the Ramah. But for these people, he's a light. 
he's the one showing them that the Torah is a very, very learned and judicious and sagacious book. Because otherwise they just have the Greek stuff to study. It's one thing in your benighted part of the world, but there's nothing else except for Tyra. Fine, you don't need it. But for everywhere else in the world, especially the Islamic world, the Ramam is the light to save them from going off and thinking that there's only wisdom and nothing in the Tyra. I see we're uh, getting short on time over here. So I'll just say a couple more quick things. That the Rambam is called by the Ramban as a holy person. It says, says, the things that you wrote about the Rambam, the Ish HaKadosh HaHu, no one came up as great as my man. No one. He says, listen to the line carefully. He says, you wrote things about him. It's also to hear it. It's also to say, also to write it. It's the same exact line that he uses in Parshas by Yehra. When he says that the Rambam's stuff about prophecy, which he says that it's all dream." Meaning this parsha, parsha Bala. He also says over there the same exact line. Also, the Shoimam, Avkila, Ayman, Mikoshka, he says the same. Okay. So if you clue in your head, like, oh yeah, the, the Ramban wrote that about the Ramban. said he's also writing about them, what they saying about the Ramban. And he writes that the Ramban is a is a is a machmir. He's a machmir on the laws of Mina Milk. We just had him parsha followers called Denu what? The bus of Ben Shinaim, Teramirkos, right? And what does the Gemara learn out? Gemara learns out from there that they were punished, right? The bus of Taiva, they got punished. But the Ramam holds a dinner bus of Ben Shinaim, he learns out six hours. Six hours, not anymore in Kulin. You're not going to find the six hours of Kulin at all. Christ holds over there that what? That it's Misudal Suda. That's all you have to wait, right? There's no six hours. The Ramam holds based upon the Pusik that takes six hours medically, I guess. For things to start to disintegrate in your mouth. He's like, he's a machmer. And you're going to throw out his books. He's a, and being machmer is a compliment. Then he writes, but he's also done things that no one ever did before. He took, for example, the works, Milchas Avaydazar, Milchas Trees, like no one ever did anything like this before. He doesn't compliment Kamatera. Kamatera maybe wasn't so amazing, not so unique. The Balatanya's Kamatera is very unique. Not so on the Shuva, but the Zara, the Sayyidatara, no one has ever done that. You're bad at this book. Like, are you, like what are you doing? Throwing out the baby with the bathroom? Like, what are you doing? But they did it. Why? Because the Hilfus of Sayyidatara, the first word chapter, which are, again, the same things that he says in the Murder. So the Ramban, as I say, doesn't like. The intemperate tone of the band he says us to hear it, and he says a very subtle criticism of Rain Shlomo and Ahar, and it probably gives a little bit of an insight as to the Ramban's approach to God. He says the MS Shamanu as the Rav Hagadol Machzik Bidushir Rabbi Seinu Ubeha Gadoson Shekol Hadivar Miu Bava Yosson Suudas Harasita Ben Amishumar Levulav Yosson Begahena Beginas Pisan Vachakiyir Vamakish LaYizkei LeRoison. He's making fun of Rabbi Shlomo and Ahar. He doesn't say he's making fun. But he's clearly poking light at him. That he takes all of these Haggadahs 
Everything's going to be literally the way it says in the Gemara. What are you reading it like? It's like uh, ingredients for a dinner. Everything has to be put in exactly right. It's like such a facile, childish understanding. And again, yeah. The, so it, if you heard what he just said. Um, 100% right. The Ramban, writes over there that he's talking to the James the King there in Aragon. He says, listen, you don't have to, we have three different parts of the Torah. We have the Torah, Flemish, and everyone has to accept it. We have the Torah Shabbat, and over there he says, for that we have to accept is what it says for Halacha. And then it says we have a third part which is called in Laz, in Spanish, sermony. Sounds very close to sermons, right? And there, you accept what you like, don't accept what you don't like. That is a very, so you're right. There are those that say, if you look there in the Kisvi Ramban, look at the footnote, it's a very, very long footnote. There are those who say that that is not the Ramban's, the Ramban's actual view. That he only said that because of the ban, of the, of the fight there with the, with the front of the king. So that's why he said it to give himself some room. But he didn't actually believe in himself. If you go through the corpus of the Ramban, you see how many times he does seem to take Agatha very, very seriously, not literally, that you do wonder what is, did he really mean it or did he not really mean it? In my own going through the Ramban, I have amassed, you know, two sides of the coin. I don't know what the final answer is. But like I said, that's why the Ramban becomes the crux. Our whole approach on many of these topics is the Ramban. Because he sees two sides of every coin, and he writes from both sides, and it's hard to know exactly. Like at the end of the day, the pigeonhole, the rabban hold this. Not so clear, easy to say. All right, well, let's just finish up. So we say that the rabban defended the rabban on specific allegations of the, of the ban that he denied the existence of of, of Gehenim, etc. It's totally not true, and he says the last line for today. We're not going to get to the 1305, but the last line for the ban in 1232 that the Ramban pushed back on, he said, you guys like decided that the Ramban is like controversial. You have to knock him out of the corpus of Allah. He's like, you know, there was a great rabbi before us. His name was the Raiva. The Raiva wrote a whole commentary on the Mishnah Torah, and he's acerbically, you know, knocking down the Ramban so many times that they made a joke that how do you know that there's a creator of the world? Because the Rabbah writes as the creator of the world, and the Rabbah didn't argue. That he didn't argue must be because in everything, and he writes about the Rambam. Not nice language, repeatedly. And it never occurred to the Rabbah, despite writing on him the entire Mishnah Torah. Right? You remember the line that he writes in Kiddush HaKadosh? He writes that this guy who's misfire, that he's such an expert in mathematics and astronomy, that he writes his whole Kiddush HaKadosh, he's just a show-off. He's like, I don't know him. I'm like Meyer Bam. I don't know this. But this is how he writes about the Rambam, Kaseder for Kaseder. People greater than you, you don't know what you're talking about. This, I mean, like, unbelievable. He never thought to ban the Rambam. And he managed to write a whole commentary, never thought once, oh, you know, this is out of the pale. So now, all of a sudden, the new generation comes up, right? The new, like the morning cooling, right? The new generation is here. Why? Oh, we found something else. We found something new that they didn't have. The rival didn't live so long ago. He was greater than all of us. He didn't ban it. Chas that we're going to ban the Ram. Shkaya.